The Hebrews writer defines faith this way. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Well, what is he talking about there? He goes on to explain. He says, faith is the idea that when we look at the world, we understand that the world was created by the word of God. Now, we don't come to that understanding on our own. We come to that understanding based on the revelation of God's word spoken to us. And so by faith, we understand that the things that are, that are seen, the world around us, was made out of the things that are invisible by spirit. That's what faith is. Abounding in Faith is the broadcast ministry of Emmanuel Bible Church of Howell, New Jersey. If you are blessed by this message, please subscribe to our podcast or YouTube channel. You can also download our app by searching for IBCNJ in the Google Play Store or the Apple Store. For more information, please visit us at www.ibcnj.org. Our speaker today is Senior Pastor Joe Suazo. Uh, we're coming to the end of uh, our series today in the book of Job. We were just looking at various portions, trying to glean lessons from Job, a man who suffered greatly in the scriptures. And uh, we too suffer if we're honest with ourselves. As we've been discussing these past few months, none of us get a pass on disappointments, weaknesses, difficulties, and trials that come into our, our lives. They're the, what I call the unwelcome visitors. And uh, we have a, a variety of ways that we respond to those things. Of course, anger being one of them and frustration. Uh, we often uh, sometimes shake our fist at God and question why, why God, uh, you who are good, are allowing me to pass through such a time as this. Or perhaps we go through a time of self-loathing where we're just pitying ourselves or or looking at ourselves and self-consumed that somehow, you know, I am to blame for all of it. You know, Job is one of those books that cuts through all of that. Because here we have a man, uh, the scripture taught, teaches, in the beginning chapters, that was a righteous man, man who feared God. And in the assembly of the heavens, a Satan goes before the Lord and says, you know, the only reason that you... That, you're, uh, that this man is blessed and he's following you is because of all the things that you've given him. Take those things away and he'll curse you. And so we see in the book of Job how all his wealth is taken away through war and his children are killed through natural disaster. His physical health is completely attacked and his wife curses him. And uh, these are things that none of us would ever welcome into our lives. And so we see a man uh, who struggles deeply. And we learned the last uh, weeks that Job, uh, in his speech, is arguing with, with really four parties. Three friends who come to comfort him, but uh, they fall to, 
two basic errors that we've been looking at. One is, they said, listen, Job, if you would just turn from your sin and turn back to God, he'll restore you. That is what we call the sin of legalism. You know, uh, all of us have maybe in one way or been subjected to a list of do's and don'ts and say, if I do the right thing, there always should be a right outcome. But that, the problem is, is life does not work out that way, does it? You could be doing the right thing and sometimes the wrong outcome can come out. So legalism is a bankrupt uh, philosophy. The other one was uh, a semblance of the prosperity gospel. As friends argued that, you know, if you just uh, redevote your life to God and, and give enough and do enough, then somehow God will restore your prosperity. Again, uh, a lie, which we know because God himself rebukes those three friends. And Job himself is just struggling deeply. Can I trust God, really, is the big question. Is God good when I'm facing difficulty? Where are you, Lord, when things are not going the way I want them to go? Now, some of you know that this sermon series has been deeply personal to me because it's a year, really, this week that I had surgery and as a result, I dropped 40 pounds, and whether I had COVID or whatever kind of crazy virus I had, uh, it was just one of those two months, put COVID on top of it, and it was just one of those deep, deep times in my life of suffering and crying out to God. And I felt like the Lord wanted me to really go to this book for me to learn, you see. And I can only give you what I've learned. And... One of the key truths, and this is how we're going to finish up today, is in the area of trusting God. You know, we, we throw that around casually, right? To trust God, no matter what. But often, suffering will put a test to the depth of our, our trust. You know, throughout God's word, we are invited many times to trust the Lord. For example, Proverbs chapter 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. Jeremiah 17 reminds us this way, blesses the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He's like a tree planted by streams of water. And of course, Jesus himself said, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. But what does it really mean to trust God? How do we increase our trust in him no matter what? This is at the heart of the book of Job. In the midst of Job's suffering, he questions God for who God is. How can a good and just God allow so? How can he be trusted? This is the question really that has plagued men from the beginning. I would say the number one reason that people push God to periphery, to the periphery of their lives, is they can't reconcile in their mind a world of woe, evil, sorrow, and injustice with a good God. Job struggled, and so do we if we're honest with ourselves. But what's beautiful about the book of Job is that God helps us resolve the struggle not by removing Job's trial, 
but revealing himself. Wow. I have to repeat that because it's so important, simple, and profound. God doesn't at first remove the trial from Job, but reveals himself. Teaches Job about himself, and that's what he invites us to as well, that we may know him and trust him no matter what may come. And that's the only way we can trust what we know in part is to know it more fully. You cannot trust that which you don't know. And so God reveals to Job himself at the end of the book in chapters 38 through 41 in two basic ways. Theologians call these two ways of revelation general revelation and special revelation. General revelation is nature. We look at the world around us and it really begs the question, from whence does all this come from? Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul puts it this way, what can be known about God is plain to man because God has revealed it for his invisible qualities or attributes, namely his divine nature, eternal power has been revealed by that which has been made ever since the creation of the world. And so one way God reveals himself is general, but more specifically, God also gives us revelation, which is called special revelation through his word, through the prophets, through the apostles and Christ himself. And so we see here at the end of the book, God reveals to Job both in speech, because he's speaking directly to Job, and also pointing Job to nature. And so both these ways of revelation about who God is, is given to Job so that Job could trust God despite his circumstances. So as we finish up this series today, we're going to look at two things embedded in this concept of revelation. First, God's speech to Job. And then secondly, Job's response, which really, when we know God more fully, should also be our response. Those are the two things we're going to look at. So let's look at these things today. But before we do, let's pick up the Bible and stand with me. Job chapter 38, if you're using a pew Bible, you can turn to page 443. I encourage you, by the way, some of you who don't have Bibles, either load it on your phone, you can read on your phone, or you can bring it with you physically. I encourage that because it's always good to have a Bible, underline it. I have underlines all over my Bibles. Uh, but to have the words so that we're not only listening but reading it, it goes in deeper that way. So we'll begin in chapter 38, and we're going to read through the first 12 verses here. After all that was said, now Elihu, just the, his last friend, the fourth friend, who actually had timely counsel, speaks. God now answers Job, says, out of the world win. Uh, the idea there is God 
answered Job ferociously, if you will. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, and I'll question you and make, you, make it known to you. Key word there is to make it known. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched out the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors? When it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band. And prescribed limits for it and said bars and doors and said thus far you shall come and no further and here you shall here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to face its place? Now turn the page to chapter 40. And then we're going to read Job's first response and then God's response to him. Verse 3 in chapter 40. Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of a small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I'll proceed no further. Then the Lord answered Job out of the world when again and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? Finally, let's look at first chapter 42, and this is Job's second response after God reveals himself to Job. Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and no purpose of yours can be dwarfed. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear, and I'll speak and I'll question you and you make it known to me. I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dustcloth and ashes. Father, we thank you for this amazing book of scripture. Really a gem in the scriptures that we often don't turn to. We thank you, Lord, that your desire is to increase our trust in you, that, that we may have peace and confidence and a sense of well-being in the midst of life's difficulties. And so we pray as we just finish up this series today that you'd speak to our hearts, that we may understand that because of who you are in Christ. In his name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So the first thing I, I really want us to, to realize is the absolute majesty of who God is. 
we'll give attention to three aspects of God's creation that God himself points out. The origin of creation, angels, and then the constellations, skies above, and then finally the animal kingdom, where God gives us nine creatures to just think about. Nine out of thousands, by the way. So let's begin with the origin of creation. If you have your Bible, again, opening to Job 38, verse 4, God asks a simple question. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Well, the answer, of course, to that question is nowhere because I didn't exist yet. <laughs> this one question should immediately humble us for none of us yet existed when God created the heavens and the earth. And when we look at the immensity of just the earth, it points to God's majesty. God presses in on Job about the earth's measurements in verse 5. And the earth's design. In, in apologetics and philosophy, this is called an argument of causality or teleology. Uh, meaning, uh, everything has to have a first cause. And the second is design. So we look at things and we, we logically say, there had to be a beginning to that one thing. That's just the logic of, of man. The second thing we do is we look at that thing and it's intrinsic with design. We say, well, because there's design behind it, there must have been a designer. Several years ago, I read a book on the Brooklyn Bridge. Fascinating story, really, because it was the first suspended large bridge, largest suspended bridge ever built of its time, and just how they had to sink these what were called cassions and into the, into the river and, and build this thing up, and, and just tremendous amount of engineering and design to it. Who would ever think of us, uh, who would ever think to look at that and say, it just appeared? It demands the question, who, who designed it? Who built it? It just didn't come to existence all on its own. That's what makes atheism, by the way, and strict, what is called strict materialism, so absurd because it assigns to material things a beginning without really explaining where the material stuff came from. And when you add that design to that, like the laws of nature or even the complexities of the DNA strand and so much more, it's really unreasonable to think that an explosion generated all these laws and design. Yet, because of the heart of man and its enmity with God, you have so many scientists that press on with that one idea. There's a, a argument of what's called irreducible complexity, which is the idea that, that when there's so many parts to something that has design in it, it it's cannot, just, cannot just happen. Irreducible complexity is like a mousetrap. 
only has five components, who would ever think that the mousetrap just came out of an explosion? It's just an absurd idea. And that's just the mousetrap. So creation begs the question, what kind of being is so powerful, so intelligent, and so majestic as to bring everything we know into existing? And the Bible answer is God. And that sounds and seems right to the human heart because the ecclesiastic writer from Ecclesiastes says, God has put eternity in the heart of man. So our heart responds well to that. That's why a child never struggles with that idea. We have to become adults for that to happen. And so Job asks, God asks Job the question, where were you at the foundation of the world? Of course, he didn't exist yet. And so God spoke, Genesis chapter 1, and brought all things into being. Wow. You know, that, that is fantastic when you think about it. The Hebrews writer defines faith this way. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Well, what is he talking about there? He goes on to explain. He says, faith is the idea that when we look at the world, we understand that the world was created by the word of God. Now, we don't come to that understanding on our own. We come to that understanding based on the revelation of God's word spoken to us. And so by faith, we understand that the things that are, that are seen, the world around us, was made out of the things that are invisible by spirit. That's what faith is. And so God asks Job, where were you at the foundations of the world? And by the way, just on a parenthetical note, if you're in chapter 38, if you ever ask the question, well, when did the angels come about? There's this interesting little verse and just a little parenthesis here in verse 7. When at creation, the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy morning stars, sons of God, were Hebrew words for angelic beings. Then the Lord moves on after laying this argument of what I call causology or teleology. He, he goes on to the skies and constellations. Look at chapter 38, verse 22. Have you entered the storehouses of snow and hail? No. I've watched them, but I haven't gone up there and entered. Now, of course, with airplanes we can, but really, I can't get up there and fly and get inside a cloud, can you? Lightning in verse 25, rain in verse 26 and thir through 30. We, then we find some interesting verses after the Lord talks about just the the majesty of the skies above. We talked about this last week. Elihu made the same argument. He moves on to the constellations or stars within our own galaxy. And if you look at chapter 38, verse 21, he gives special attention to Pleiades and Orion, two constellations in the northern hemisphere, which sit uh, in the lesser constellation known as Leo. By the way, don't think I'm so smart. I, I remember all this stuff. Google, Google. 
Don't like everything that Google stands for, but I'll tell you what, when you need information, sometimes it's good stuff. But what makes these significant, these constellations, was in the Middle Eastern culture, they had to figure out when to plant their crops. And when those constellations began to edge up out of the horizon, then they knew the time was near to start plowing and planting. And so Job would have been very familiar with these particular constellations. But with telescope technology, we know quite a bit more today than than Job would know. First, these constellations are 240 light years away. Now, when you start speaking about light years, it's just an impossibility for the human mind to get its to get around. And remember, this is just within our own galaxy, which uh, astronomers believe have 100,000 times a million stars. If you're a mathematician out there, you can figure out what that is, like the 10th to whatever power. It's a number unfathomable, and that's just our own galaxy, by the way. And you know, with the Hubble telescope, they look out, and what do they find? They think there are billions of these galaxies. We're just one of them. And, and God created these things. Why? So we would never even be remotely tempted to think that we are something when we're nothing. And then Job asked this question in verse 31, chapter 38. Can you bind the chains of Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Of course, the answer is no. You know, even if we were traveling at the speed of light, we wouldn't even get there for 240 years, whatever that means. By the way, I, I, I laugh at the folly of Bezo and Musk. Uh, I do have a, a little thing over Musk and, uh, and his um, inventions and SpaceX and all that stuff. I read his biography. I think he is an interesting guy, but... You know, they're strict agnostics. And they believe, ultimately, their worldview says that this world's going in the crapper. So we need to create spaceship technology so that we can create new settlements on places like Mars so that eventually humanity can have a place to go after it destroys itself. It's a wonderful, happy, cheerful worldview, by the way. But just the folly of thinking that they can do this. Uh, and now all, they, they, I think they sent somebody out in just the Earth's rotation for over a year, they came back a physical wreck. And they realized just to get someone out of outer space in a gravity-less situation is going to be detrimental to human health. But uh, man presses on with his folly. But listen to what Psalm 113 tells us. From the rising to the setting of the sun, the name of the Lord is to be praised. But then there are these curious verses. For the Lord alone is high above the heavens. I don't know what above the heavens means even to you. If there's a billion galaxies out there, I was thinking to myself, I guess there's a parameter around the universe but then what's beyond the parameter of the universe? I don't know. God, I suppose. But he's high above them. Who is like the Lord who sits on high looking far down on the heavens and the earth? 
You see, we look at the heavens and it should mystify us. It should literally paralyze us. Of course, New Jersey, we don't get a very good look at the night sky of all the light pollution. But if any of you have been to the desert, which I've been to a number of deserts and things, it's just striking when you look out at the Milky Way and just the display and to know that there's a God that great who put all that into being. Then the Lord moves on. Uh, really, he could have gone so many places, but he moves on to the animal kingdom. And he only talks about seven animals and interestingly, two dinosaurs. I believe them to be dinosaurs. Seven now, he could have talked about a lot of animals because, by the way, scientists believe there are 7,000 kinds with thousands and thousands and thousands of what are called variations that have happened through microevolution over the years. So Job 39, God calls Job out to remind him of the qualities of these seven animals, goats, lions, donkeys, oxes, ostriches, horses, and hawks. Goats in chapter 39, interesting because of how fiercely independent they are. And he brings attention to this to see, can we really understand? The day a goat is born, they get on their feet within the first 30 seconds. And they're running. I know when I was born, I wasn't running, it took me about a year and a half. And so he just brings attention just to this mystifying fact. And of course that's true, partially true about the whole equestrian family of like uh, courses and things of that nature, giraffes. But then God also points to lions hunting and uh, this is where I have to confess, your pastor has a little bit of a weird interest, by the way. I like watching lions and tigers hunt on YouTube. They're saying, oh, oh boy, maybe I shouldn't be in this church. <laughs> you know, I don't know. It just fascinates me to look at these powerful beasts and what they're capable of doing and, and just the severity of nature itself. He talks about a donkey surviving in arid, salty places. I mean, places that animals shouldn't survive. That would be true of, of course, the camel too. Uh, the ostrich who abandons his nest, he talks about. The horse, how it's used in battle. The ox, how they use it for plowing and harnessing its energy in agriculture. And God points out to these animals why. He wants Job to understand that the design of these animals and so many more God could have talked about is because of who he is. Awesome in creativity and power. And then in chapter 40, 41, God moves on, interestingly, to dinosaurs. And you think to yourself, hmm, dinosaurs? Specifically, verse 15, the behemoth, if I'm saying that right, and the Leviathan in 41. Now, creation scientists 
who argue for a young earth, and I agree with them because the Bible speaks of a young earth and all the things that we see in the earth today in terms of its patterns are created by flood. Uh, they believe that Job was written or a man who walked a few hundred years after the flood and a few years before Abraham. Now the biblical date for the flood from Genesis 6 through 9 is around 3,200 years before Christ, 1,600 years after creation, following the Bible. Now since Noah would have also had to bring dinosaurs on the ark, young ones obviously, uh, when they were released, they would have been among men. Now I was watching some different lectures on dinosaurs because, you know, I know a little bit about it, but just listening to these creation scientists, there are only about 55 kinds of dinosaurs. Most of them, 45 of them, were smallish in size. There are only 10 large ones or so. But think about this. Our culture has been so brainwashed with the idea that dinosaurs existed millions of years ago with an old earth that people in the world think it's laughable that the earth is only 6,000 years old and dinosaurs lived in recent history. Well, there are a lot of arguments for this and actually I have a series of lectures on this. This could be a series in and of itself. But let me just point out one interesting event in history. Mount St. Helen, which exploded 30 plus years ago, when it exploded, it had the power of 1,600 nuclear bombs equal to Hiroshima. It was, you know, for some of us to remember, it actually blackened the skies here in New Jersey for a while as the dust found its way. After that explosion, the pattern that the pattern that geologists claim that took millions of years to create in the Grand Canyon was created in three days. Exact same sediment layering. No difference. Or very little. And also wood was petrified in a very short amount of time through this, which they say it takes millions of years to happen. Now, what's also interesting about these dinosaurs is that history records the Middle Age history in Europe and China records dragons with fire breathing abilities. Look at chapter 41 verse 15. We see the Leviathan is described with a, a back that looks like rows of shields, breathes fire in verses 18 through 21, and is a creature in verse 25, that's unconquerable. The behemoth in chapter 40, verses 16 through 24, is much like what would be called the brontosaurus, that ate grass like an ox, who is unfrightened even by turbulent river, and whose tail is like a large cedar. Neither description of the behemoth or the leviathan match any animal today. And so I think it's reasonable to conclude that these are 
dinosaurs. And just one final thought about these dinosaurs. I find it interesting that most of the remains, or talking about the fossils, were found in burial sites that would have come from a flood. Even modern-day geologists would recognize that. And so God points these things out to Job. Again, why, why did God point to the stars above? Why did he point to the animal kingdom? Why did he point to these great beasts that were walking during Job's time? So that Job would understand the God who brought all this into being. Why would God do that? Why does God reveal himself to us as he is? So that we would be in relationship with him and trust him. And Job gets the lesson. Look at this final section we're going to look at. I call it the folly of who man is or who we are. Job's first response in chapter 40, verses 3 through 5 is this, I'm of small account. <laughs> when you compare ourselves with all creation, that is the logical response, is it not? I'm of small account. What shall I answer you? I've spoken once, I'll not answer twice, but I'll not proceed any further. Here we see a, a right response of man's heart when confronted with the reality of who God is. Because God is all-powerful, and that power is on full display by the sky, stars, and animal kingdom, who are we to question God's goodness and justice? Hmm. No. We're of small account. Even in the light of the world's suffering, evil, even in the light of my own difficulties, if God is so awesome to create everything we see, including the vastness of the heavens themselves, should we not come before him instead of arguing silently? Listening? Surrendered? I like uh, Psalm 48 because it invites us to be still and know that he is God. And that verse, be still and know that he's God, is, is parked right in the midst of warfare. Psalm 48, he says, God who makes wars to cease and shatters the bow. Be still and know that I'm God. I'll be exalted among the nations. I'll be exalted in the earth. And so Job's first response is, to be still, recognizing his small account. His second response, if you look at Job 42, 2, is confession, <laughs> repentance. I know, God, you can do all things. Do you believe that this morning? Now, if we believe that he can do all things, do you believe that he's going to get you through the trial that you're going through right now? The degree that you believe it is the degree that you'll have peace in the midst of it. The degree that you believe it is the degree that you'll have peace in the midst of it. If your heart's full of anxiety and fear about what the future holds, and you're more listening to 
CNN and Fox News and all these other toxic sources of information, and you're filled with all consternation, the question is, are you trusting him? The degree that you can trust him is the degree that you'll have peace. And so in 42.2, he says, I know, God, you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. I mean, if God is the God who put all that into place, the animal kingdom and the stars above, can his purposes be thwarted? Absolutely not. And then verses 5 and 6 in chapter 42. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes have seen you, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You see, Job's argument with God about his justice and goodness, his friend's bad theology is completely neutralized in the face of who God really is. And now, after God responds, Job is humbled and repents, turning from his pride, turning from his arrogance, turning from a questioning mind, and learning to surrender and trust God more fully. That is where God wants us. That is what true repentance means. It means to turn from ourselves and turn to him and trust him fully and not ourselves. That's where God invites each of us. In the light of who he is, we need to see who we are. And when that happens, we turn from ourselves. And whatever we are going through, we understand that he's able to fulfill his purposes for us. Psalm 138, though the Lord is on high, he regards the lowly. The proud he knows from afar, though I walk in the midst of trouble, the Lord preserves my life for the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. I love it. And that leads us to, to one final truth. And this, this aspect at the end of the book of Job really blows my mind. The shed blood of Christ himself. The shed blood of Christ himself. Remember, whenever we see blood sacrifices in the Old Testament, they're pointing to Christ. How do we know that? Well, the Hebrews writer, for one, told us. The Hebrews writer tells us that, that these sacrifices of the Old Testament were repeated again and again because they were a shadow of things to come, which ultimately were found in Christ because the Old Testament sacrifices were repeated time and time and time again. But Christ died once and for all. Look now at Job 42.8. God speaking to Job, Job's friends. These three friends that gave bad counsel. He says, to them take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up burnt offerings 
for yourself and my servant Job shall pray for you, for I'll accept his prayer not to deal with you in accordance with your folly. For you have not spoken of what is right. I love it. I love that God gives a way out of our foolishness. Isn't it great? And what is that way? It's not our way. It's his way. It's through Christ, the perfect sacrifice that came for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And so all of our thoughts and affections and our craziness that we often have in our hearts and minds is corrected when we go to Christ. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so we can take all of our cares, all of our anxieties, all of our questions, and turn to him. And what's beautiful? I will accept your prayer. Right here. Verse 8. I'll accept your prayer. That's what repentance is, does. We turn from ourselves and our sin and turn to him. I'll accept your prayer. I don't know where you're at this morning. I would imagine there's, most of you have accepted Christ as your savior. And are walking confidently, that's great. And uh, praise God for you. Maybe you're here this morning, you accepted the Lord as Savior, but you're struggling with the trial you're going through and questioning God's goodness and questioning his purpose for your life. Maybe it's time to reorient and say, you know, Lord, I want to trust you more fully. I want that peace that Pastor Joe's talking about. The Bible calls it a peace that passes all understanding. That only comes through Christ. You have to turn to him more fully and from yourself. That's for the believer now. Now, if you're here this morning and you've yet to confess Christ as your Savior, we have the pattern right here. We turn from our sin. We turn from all the foolishness and the folly of who we are, and we turn to him and accept the perfect sacrifice through Jesus Christ, knowing that his shed blood forgives us. And when we do that, we have this great promise right here in Job. He hears and accepts and loves and extends mercy. Is that good news? That's the good news of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this fantastic book of scripture, Job. Lord, for all of us, may we not be untouched by it, but be transformed and changed for that is the will of God for you, for us in Christ Jesus. Help us towards that end, Lord. We need your power through the Spirit to help us towards that end. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.